Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. Mark 2, beginning at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even the, at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise up, rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1934, it was discovered that a woman named Ida Wood had been living in room 552 of the Harrow Square Hotel in New York 
for almost 25 years. Uh, she had been living there with her sister, and actually for a while another woman who they believed was her daughter. Uh, the, the daughter had died a few years earlier. Her sister died that day, and she was calling for help. And in, in the process of calling for help, staff from the hotel came into the room and discovered that these three women had been living in, you know, when you picture someone living in a hotel, you might get an idea of like extreme luxury. This was just a, a fairly common room, uh, but they'd been living in it for 25 years. Uh, they'd been cooking on a, a rigged up um, hot plate, rigged in the, in the bathroom, turning the bathroom into something of a kitchen. And they began, the hotel staff, unraveling this story. Of who, who was this guest who had been here for 25 years and had only ever seen you know, one staff member who would bring them groceries? Uh, she'd pay him in cash. She'd give him a fairly small tip and apologize and say she had no money. And yet every week she'd ask for, for more groceries. was always very concerned to get very, very inexpensive groceries. And as a lawyer was brought into the situation, began looking into the past, he discovered Ida Wood had first come to New York in 1950, uh, 1857, and had claimed to be the daughter of the Mayfield family, a prominent sugar planting family in Louisiana. And she had managed to kind of attract the attention in a very direct and forward way of a, a leading uh, political and, um, I believe, real estate light in New York, um, Benjamin Wood. Uh, they had become lovers, and then they'd married, and she had learned how to manage his uh, gambling addiction so that he could function normally and so that they could occupy this place sort of at the, the, the peak of New York society. Now, the crazy thing about all of this was that it was all based on a lie. Um, with time, it became apparent that Ida was not actually connected to the Mayfield family. And shortly after her death, the lawyer was able to piece together that she'd actually been born Ellen Walsh. Uh, the child of poor Irish immigrants to Massachusetts. But as a poor child, as a, a child who was known by no one, as a child who'd experienced the difficulty of you know, being an immigrant in mid-1800s context of New England, she wanted more. She wanted wealth. She wanted fame. As a small child, and she revealed this to a, a nurse on her deathbed, she had paid a fortune teller to tell her fortune. And the fortune teller said to her, you're going to be a very lucky girl. You're going to marry a rich man and get everything you want out of this life. And as it turns out, that's exactly what happened to Ellen Walsh. Uh, when she came to New York and began spinning this story about being Ida Mayfield and connecting herself to Benjamin Wood and building this life of fame and fortune and wealth, she got what she wished for. She got everything she wished for. And the problem is it wasn't enough. When you get what you wish for, when you get that thing that you think is going to solve all of your problems, is going to fix your deepest problem, it very often is the case that it breaks you. It left her in a condition where after her husband's death in 1907, she pulled out all of her cash from the bank with the word to the teller saying, I'm just tired of everything and checked her into the Herald Square Hotel and tried to disappear and lived, as I said, for 25 years in this fairly normal room, uh, packed with the, the things that she felt she would need in order to survive, cooking on a, an improvised kitchen, 
and living in, in a very tiny space with what turned out to be her two sisters. She had received the answer to what she thought was her problem in life. She thought her poverty and her not being known was the issue, and she found a solution, and the solution nearly broke her. We have this tendency to identify something in our life that we would say, that's the problem. And if I could solve that problem, everything would be okay. And as we look into this text, we're going to see Jesus is very concerned to address that in a couple of different situations. Uh, The first section we're going to look at is about the paralytic in verses 1 through 5. Uh, Then we're going to be moving to looking at the section that's about the Pharisees, verses 6 through 12. And then... In verses 13 through 17, we're going to look at how this story is about us. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us by your word, we pray. Overcome my and our desire to to twist your word to tell us that it's going to be solving the problem we want it to solve. And use it instead to address the problem that you see the problem that is the real problem. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 1, we're continuing, as I I noted when we looked at the section before this, this is sort of the, that was rather the, the rise to popularity montage, if you will. We're now entering the growing opposition montage. Uh, We start seeing Jesus encountering not just people that are adoring him, but people that are questioning him. And people that will, as we saw in the the passage that's after this that we looked at last week, it closed with the plot of the Pharisees to destroy him. But first in verse 1, the the local boy comes home having made good. Uh, He's back in the region around Galilee. Nazareth is not far from Galilee, the region where he grew up. And he's reported that he's at home and people are gathering in such numbers that this person who is in need of healing can't even get to him. And so the paralytic's friends bring him up on the roof. And we know from another account there are roof tiles, and they remove the roof tiles, and they begin digging through the roof. These roofs would be constructed of uh, like a a wood structure that's bound together out of branches and then has mud applied to it to make a, a, a strong structure. So they're able to dig through it and get to where they can lower the paralytic down in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees the paralytic. They came bringing to... I just read through that. When Jesus saw their faith in verse 5, He said to the paralytic, and we'd think here, Jesus sees their faith, sees the paralytic in front of them, and we'd think he would start with, stand up, I'm going to heal you. That's what the paralytic wants. And that's what the paralytic is seeing as his biggest problem. I'm stuck on a stretcher. I live in an agrarian society where my labor is needed in order to prosper, and I can't labor because I can't move. And so his biggest perceived need is going to be healing. But before Jesus addresses that biggest perceived need, he doesn't want to set the paralytic up for a failure. For now that I am whole, now that I can walk, now that I have the thing that I most want, it's not enough. My life's not going to work the way I thought it was because I thought if I could walk, everything would be fine But there's this bigger problem, sin, separation from God. And it it seems that putting that in front of the paralytic at this point, it's almost mean. It's, It's 
almost like he's tying his paralyzed state to his sin, and that's not what he's doing. He's not saying, your problem is sin, and so I'm going to take away the sin so that you can be healed. That's not what's going on, even though that's something that the Pharisees might understand to be the problem. They think he's being judged for something he did. Jesus is not making that connection. He's rather saying the paralytic has the same problem that everyone in the room has. They're estranged from God. They need forgiveness even more than they need the ability to walk. Even more than this paralytic who has spent his life wanting to be able to walk, even more than he needs the ability to walk, he needs restoration to God. And by saying to him that his biggest problem is this estrangement from God, not the, the paralysis that he can't do anything about, but rather the, the sin, the separation from God that is his choice, that is yours and my choice, that is how we function, separating ourselves from God. While it seems mean to say that, it's actually empowering. Because what Jesus is saying is, your problem is not the hand that life has dealt you, but it's how you react to that hand. In our previous church, we were helping a lady that was in our community, kind of on the fringes of our church, who from one perspective, you could see her as a victim. Um, She and her husband were homeless and had moved in with a man that was a bit mentally unstable to help him rehab his home. And shortly before she gave birth, they were kicked out of the home. And then shortly after she had given her birth, her husband abandoned her. And in the the pain of what am I going to do with this newborn without family, without support network, without, without my husband, she turned to heroin to ease her pain. And she couldn't support the heroin habit, so she began working for a pimp. And the pimp was abusive. And so she eventually made her way back. They had, they had gone away to St. Louis. They came back to where we were in Carbondale. And she found a man that she could live with, and he kicked her out. And you can look at, and, and the way she would articulate this was these, this, this awful hand I've been dealt. And in talking with her, I tried to, to give her a different perspective, not from a position of judgment, not, you know, this is the result of your choices, and so you're, you know, you're getting your just rewards, but rather, look, you have agency. Yes, you've, you've been given an awful set of circumstances, but you've also got to look at these as, as choices that you have made. Uh, you chose to start using heroin to overcome the pain. Uh, when you got back to Carbondale and we found a homeless shelter where you could be taken in, you chose to not follow the rules and get kicked out. You chose to move in with this random man simply because he was a means of, of getting shelter, and you got kicked out there. And my point wasn't trying to, to make this a, a blame issue, but an issue of saying rather than looking at your life as this never-ending, you know, bad set of cards getting dealt to you, if you see some of the things that are happening to you as the result of your choices, you actually have power. You have the ability to make different choices. You have the ability to respond, to lean into these realities differently. If we can acknowledge that where we are, and that doesn't mean, so therefore you can go fix it all. You can make different choices and now you're going to be fine. If you rather say, I'm actually responsible for the choices that I've made, and it is my sin that is getting me here, I'm able to begin to ask for help in a different way. 
I'm able to ask for help not as the victim that just can't get a break, but as the person who is seeking to repent of and to change the way I'm leaning into the world around me. We have this tendency, and we don't, we don't have a, a difficult, most of us, life like the woman I'm describing. But we try to build our identity on something besides Jesus. We try and build the support networks and the systems for how we lean into the world on our accomplishments, our intelligence, on making sure people perceive us as, as nice people or as competent people. We try and develop security that we don't see as resting on Christ, but as resting on what we've done, what things we can put in place. Like Ida Wood, saying, I can get over the, the pain and, and poverty and ignominy of being born to poor immigrants by marrying a rich, politically connected man. We try to build ways that are dependent on us or on things that we'll put our trust in. <coughs> the epidemic rates of depression in the West can actually be seen this way. As a culture that has achieved a level of wealth and comfort and security that is unrivaled in human history, we've come to levels of depression and uncertainty because of that uh, wish-fulfillment syndrome. When you get the thing you most want, you discover that that thing you most want isn't enough, isn't going to fulfill you. And so Jesus, out of real, true love for this paralytic, is wanting to say to him, when I heal you, don't assume that that fixes all of your problems. The first thing you need is to come to terms with the reality that you are estranged from God and need to be restored to Him. Let's turn to how this is a story about the Pharisees. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and scribes are, are religious leaders as well, so uh, very often scribe and Pharisee are used uh, interchangeably, but the, the scribes here are teachers of the law. Some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they've perceived something accurate here. They've understood that in Jesus' statement, Jesus is making a claim to deity. Uh, one preacher described it this way, uh, if Tom, Dick, and Harry are together, and Tom hauls off and smacks Di uh, Dick in the head, and Harry turns to Tom and says, Tom, it's okay, I forgive you. Any fool can tell you, Harry doesn't have the right to tell Tom that Tom is forgiven for hitting Dick. It's Dick who's got the bloody nose that needs to be the one that says to Tom, I forgive you. Dick's the one who's been offended. Dick's the one who has the right to be able to say, I forgive you. Well, if Jesus is going to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I'm not Harry speaking out of turn, I'm the offended party. I'm the one who actually has the right to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a lot more implied there, though. Uh, Dick can say to Tom, it's okay that you punched me. I've done bad things, too. My nose will heal. Jesus, in claiming to be God, is claiming to be the perfect embodiment of the justice and perfection and holiness of God. When Jesus encounters broken humanity, selfish, unjust humanity... 
He's not going to be able to just say your sins, your sins are forgiven without consequence. There's going to have to be consequence. Notice where he goes. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, in one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no outward sign that anything changes. Jesus can say your sins are forgiven, and people can maybe assume that his sins are forgiven, but not really know. The harder statement is going to be to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and to actually heal the man. And yet, the fact that he has the authority to revoke the paralysis, to command the paralysis to leave the man, to command the man to be able to stand up, demonstrates his authority as God. And in that demonstration, we realize the claim, your sins are forgiven, is actually the harder statement. Because to forgive sins not only requires that Jesus be God, but that Jesus do what is necessary to overcome the the separation between the man's sins and his own nature of divine justice. To forgive sins, Jesus is saying God can't just turn away from injustice but that God has to deal with injustice. Now, the scribes are not going to be seeing this and understanding all that is implied here. The disciples are not going to be getting all that is going on. But Jesus understands that in saying, I forgive your sins, he is going to have to atone for, to make up for, to overcome the not only offense, but incompatibility between this man's sins and the justice and holiness of his own nature. And so in saying to the man, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is looking to the cross and the resurrection. His own atoning for the sins and his own overcoming death and rising again, which, which in a similar way, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and walk. Jesus dies taking the atonement, but criminals die. Jesus rises again. Jesus comes back to life, proving that he is who he says he was and not only proving it, The resurrection isn't just proof that Jesus was who he said he was, it's also his defeat of death, his defeat of Satan, his coming to do what he said he would do. And so when Jesus says to the Pharisee, in the Pharisee's presence, my sons, your sins are forgiven, they understand that he's making a claim to Godhood. And then he proves that claim. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them. So they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus proves that it is harder to say your sins are forgiven because he has to be the God who will atone for those sins in order to deal with it. But now I want us to look at the last four verses, 13 through 17, I guess that's five verses, as how this story is about us. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, and the his must refer to Levi, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, 
to understand better what's going on here, the, the way that Romans collected taxes was something that looked maybe a little bit to us as kind of moderns looking back like a feudal system, if you will. Uh, they weren't going to set up a bureaucracy of people that were going to go keep track of everything. Rather, they were going to deputize people who knew the local culture and knew what the local culture could support and could go into that culture and know how to raise taxes there. And the people, the, the bureaucrats, if you will, who got to do that would bid for the opportunity because what you were doing was claiming you were going to be able to get a certain amount of taxes for Rome and you were going to pay that amount to Rome. And so the highest bidder would get this because that person felt that they could extract that amount from the local population. And along the way, they were going to skim off over and above to cover their own needs. Well, <clears throat> in Jewish society, the picture is Jews versus Romans, Jews versus Gentiles, Jews versus everyone else. And so the tax collectors, the native ethnic Jews, were not like Romans who were taking advantage of Jews, they were traitors. They were Jews who had crossed over, who had abandoned their ethnic and religious identity and crossed over to betray their own people in the eyes of the Pharisees to the Romans by becoming tax collectors who were extorting as much as they could from the people. By the claim the Pharisees are making there, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, people like them, people who have abandoned their religious identity? They're missing the point. They're setting up a dichotomy we've been looking at since the beginning of Matthew. It's a dichotomy between religion, as the Pharisees will define it, and the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. <clears throat> What we saw set up in, in the first uh, passage we looked at is the difference between advice, which is what religions do, do these things, act these ways, identify yourselves with these people, and God will accept you, and news. God is coming to do what is necessary to break down the dividing wall of hostility between fallen humanity and himself and restore us to him. The Pharisees and scribes are looking for a religion. Do the things you're supposed to do, put on the, the signs and the outward appearances of being Israel, and when you do that well and correctly, God will accept you. And Jesus is coming to the tax collector, to the one who isn't even trying anymore, the one who has given up, <clears throat> the one who has given in to the desires of the world around and said, there's news. I have come to reunite you to the Father follow me. And Levi responds. Now, I want to make a caveat when, when you use that distinction, religion versus the kingdom. Uh, sometimes the way we talk about that is religion equals worship and organs and catechisms and rules and disciplines versus relationship with Jesus. But as a postmodern and consumeristic and very self-centered society, what we tend to take from that is, well, religion is about, sorry, <clears throat> relationship is about me and Jesus, and religion is about the trappings of the church. And very quickly, we set up this dichotomy where the church isn't really part of relationship. That's not what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> the trappings of religion, worshiping together, praising God. Uh, doing catechism with our children, studying Scripture together, praying together, going through those motions, if you will, of the way a religion functions, 
are useful, are helpful. Cement our identity as the people of God. Help us in our growth in grace and our growth in sanctification as we come more and more to depend and trust and believe the news that God has done all that is necessary to reunite us to Himself. So I don't want to fall into the religion versus relationship trap of it's Jesus and me or it's the institutional church and all of the garbage that goes along with that. But I do want to point out the difference between the church and what the Pharisees are expecting the Messiah to be. The church is those who have heard and responded to the news that God has come to restore us. The religion that the, that the Pharisees are expecting the Messiah to set up is a religion that looks a certain way and does a certain thing, and by setting those markers, you acknowledge yourself to be okay. And Jesus' response to this, <clears throat> why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that statement in itself invites introspection, invites us to ask a question, which one am I? And it's sort of shocking, because typically when you're asked, you know, which one am I, you're being asked, well, choose to be righteous, don't choose to be a sinner, choose to do what's right, don't choose to be part of what's wrong, and yet which group is Jesus coming to call? Jesus says, I came... Sorry, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The right choice is to acknowledge that we're those who always need a physician, that we're those who are sick. The the call here is to say not, I am righteous. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at how I've, even as as Presbyterians, we kind of turn into, look, I've got the right theology. Jesus can love me because I've recognized the true theology and I've learned enough of it. Jesus is saying instead, acknowledge we're sinners. Repent. This goes back to his initial cry back in the beginning of Mark where it says he came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. Calling sinners is saying and, and acknowledging I am one of those sinners being called is saying, I need what only Jesus can provide. I can't do enough, I can't identify enough, I can't learn enough, I can't make myself okay by my religion. I must acknowledge that Jesus has come into the world to do what only Jesus can do and repent of failing and repent of trying to fix myself and believe. And respond as the paralytic and as the tax collector are both being called. My problem isn't some other thing that if I could overcome it, financial security, uh, finishing my PhD, uh, fixing the relationships around me, whatever the thing is that we think, if I can do that, I'm going to be okay. We need to repent of that. And respond to the one who came to heal the sick and to raise the dead. The one who can say both the easy thing, stand and walk, and the hard thing, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as the one who has entered into our world to reunite us to the Father, 
to overcome the separation placed between selfish, broken, fallen sinners like us and a holy, just, perfect God. We call on you to work in us by your Spirit to overcome our constant attempts to fix ourselves, to decide that we're okay, to lay hold of the thing that we think if we get that, we'll be fine, and to rest in the repentance of acknowledging our sin and receiving your forgiveness. We pray it in your holy name. Amen.